The reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 11. Continuing our time in the book of Proverbs. We come to Proverbs chapter 11 and we'll take up as our reading this evening verses 1 through 5. Proverbs chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word this evening. How excellent is your word, O Lord, the wisdom and riches which it so plainly sets forth are inexhaustible, Lord, on unfathomable depths, uh, for uh, they truly reveal you, uh, you who are infinite, eternal, uh, unchanging. And so we give you thanks for this, this gift, uh, this gift of a revelation, a revelation of who you are, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who you are as creator, who you are as redeemer, who you are as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who you are as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who you are as our God and Father. And so we pray that you would give us the ears to hear uh, your word as, as children hear the voice uh, of their God, their Father, as subjects hear the voice of their King, as disciples hear the voice of their Master, their teacher, uh, their beloved rabbi. We know, Father, left to ourselves, we would harden our hearts. We wouldn't hear. And so we ask that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and to see the excellencies of who you are on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. A glimpse his glory, the one who has appeared full of grace and truth. We pray, Lord, that as we see, you would build us up and you would strengthen us that you would retrieve us, that you would correct us, that you would mold us, you would fashion us. Lord, do all of those things which you alone can do and which you're pleased to do by the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. I took a slightly different uh, approach to the catechism question uh, this evening. Instead of uh, reading the fourth commandment, uh, again, I uh, took one of my favorite passages from uh, Revelation chapter one, one of the a more important passages in the discussion about the Christian Sabbath, uh, as a unique phrase appears there, as we'll see in a moment. Um, but I'll read for us uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses uh, 9 through 11. And then once more, we'll take up Westminster Shorter Catechism question 60, which you can find on page uh, 972 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. And I believe it still remains uh, in the bulletin as well, if I'm not mistaken. But first, this is God's word. Lend your attention. Mm. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the, patience in, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now sends the reading of God's word. And then question 60 asks, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. There's no accounting for taste, as the saying goes. I don't know if you've ever had anyone say that to you. I found it offensive, actually, at the time a person said it to me, said that I like something, and they said, well, there's no accounting for taste. And I was like, I think that's an insult. <laughs> I think. But I understand it. Uh, there is no accounting for taste in one sense, and uh, I've tried to overcome this. I've Uh, tried to force myself to like certain things that I know are good to me, and I've made no progress. Cottage cheese comes to mind, (laughs) as do sardines. (laughs) But there is, from another angle, the plain fact that tastes do change. Perhaps you've experienced this. And we have a well-known phrase, an acquired taste. So you can acquire new tastes. I've experienced this as well. I've never liked mushrooms. Now I do. I had a deep distaste for running. Now I like it in the broadest sense of that word. Mm. My appreciation for wine exploded suddenly upon me with absolutely no explanation whatsoever. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And then it was biblically good. Mm. In a sense, worship is an acquired taste. Left to ourselves, we have a taste only for sin and the vanity of this world. We have only a taste for death, though we convince ourselves that it's life. Perhaps you can remember that iteration of your life. Think back to your pre-Christian days, the things that you had a taste for, the fact that they were death and the fact that you were utterly oblivious to it. Worship is an acquired taste. In the new birth, we acquire new taste. We suddenly have a taste for life. We have a taste for God. We have a taste for Jesus Christ and the goodness of God. Peter uses this very image, taste that the Lord is good. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, Worship is exercising that taste. Worship 
is feeding that appetite, feeding that palate. Now there's a sense in which this is a binary. Either you have a taste for death or you have a taste for life. You're either dead or you're alive, to use the image of Scripture. But in another sense, if we learn, there's also a sense in which we're growing in our appetite. I've had this impressed upon me in experiential ways. As a little baby, you have a little appetite, but you eat a lot. As you grow up, your appetite grows. The stronger you are, strangely enough, the heartier your appetite. And there's a sense in which the Christian life is presented in that way. We expect a growing appetite, a vibrant appetite that progresses from one form of food to another, all of which attests that life is at work. All of this gives a lovely angle on the Christian Sabbath, which we've been considering for some time now. If you're just joining us, I can regrettably tell you that we're in part four, so I'm not going to answer almost any of the questions that you have about the Christian Sabbath because they've already been answered in the previous three parts. But I can tell you that today we get to the main course, that the Sabbath is for worship. And that the new birth has a taste for worship. And that God in his great kindness and goodness continues to grow us in that appetite. The question states plainly, the principal acts that fill our day on the Sabbath are those of public and private worship. And in that order of priority. But first I want to highlight what the Catechism teaches, uh, namely, it's that there is another place for another set of activities. We said that there's a place for rest, both from our toil, from our worldly labors. There's a sense in which we cease our recreations, those things which legitimately occupy the six days. We leave them off for the one. So there's a place for other things, the doing of other things, the taking up of other things. And so here we find yet another set of categories for what fills the Sabbath day. I don't know if you're familiar with these terms, the works of necessity and mercy. Did you hear them in the catechism? It says legitimately we're engaged in the works of necessity and the works of mercy. Well, what are the works of necessity? What are works of necessity? Now again, there's no strict list. We've already said that any sort of strict list or rigid blueprint from the day defies the spirit of the day in a very basic sense. We cited Turretin and Hodge on that matter. But generally it means what is necessary. (laughs) Works of necessity are those works which are necessary. The biblical example that the catechism cites is found in Matthew 12, verses 1 and following. If you remember there, Jesus' disciples are plucking grain as they're walking, as they're following Christ, as Christ is on his messianic mission, as Christ is engaged in that work of new creation, as it were, as a new Adam. His followers are hungry. (laughs) And so what do they do? They pick grain and they eat it. And then a bunch of formalists, a bunch of letter of the law jokers come along and say, why do your disciples do what's not lawful 
to do on the Sabbath? And the Lord says, you don't know anything. (laughs) Oh, I hope he says that to you sometimes. He says it to me a lot. I hope he says that to you. You don't know anything. You don't know anything. It's so good for us to be humbled. He's so kind in the way that he humbles us. What's necessary, what's necessary for you to eat on the Sabbath? You've got to exert that energy that moves hand to mouth. You've got to exert that energy that takes it up and takes it in. It's a work of necessity. It's non-negotiable. I guess the Lord could have prescribed fasting on this day, but he didn't. He said we can eat. In fact, he integrated eating into the very fabric of the day as we take bread and wine into our mouth, into our bodies. You can find any number of authors citing any number of examples, but the examples are simply illustrative of the principle that there are things that are just necessary to happen, and we need not worry that they happen, and we have to expend energy on making them happen. If you get a flat tire on the way to worship, you got to change it. It's a work of necessity. If you got cows, you got to milk them. It's a work of necessity. If you have a baby, you're going to have to change diapers on the Sabbath. You can't plead rest in the Lord to get out of diaper duty, dads. I've tried it. (laughs) You get the idea that there are certain things which just have to happen, and the Lord says, do them, don't worry about it. I'm good. You have no idea how good I am. That's the basic idea There's an understanding that Christians are going to differ on what constitutes a work of necessity. So I enjoin upon you, wrestle with it in earnest before the Lord. Isn't that the spirit of maturity that we enjoy in this gospel age? Once upon a time, the church was underage where God was constantly saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Why? Because the church was underage. But we've reached maturity in the age of the gospel. Earnestly wrestle with this before the Lord. The Lord delights to see us use our freedom in Christ earnestly in prayer before him saying, Lord, what would you have me do? What is good to do in this freedom to serve you? And the Lord says, I love you. That's the exact question I want to hear. And he gives wisdom as we earnestly wrestle with him. The second are works of mercy. These are simple, right? They're works that are done out of compassion and care for others. The biblical examples here that the catechism cites are the regularity with which Jesus healed on the Sabbath. It's almost like he went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath. Now, partly this was to show what the true meaning of the Sabbath was in bringing rest from the sin and the misery of this world as the Messiah. Tolkien seized upon this in this beautiful scene in Return of the King where I was totally lost on me and gone in the movie, which is why you shouldn't watch the movies, they're abysmal. You should read the book because Aragorn is a healer. I don't know if you've noticed it, there's a, there's a throwaway scene, but the king heals. He brings healing to all those who have been wounded in the war. There's a sense in which the world is plunged into a state of warfare, sin, and misery, and the king brings healing, and that's what the rest is. It's an anticipation of that great day when there's going to be no more sickness, no more disease, no more wounds of any kind, no more tears of any kind. The Lord, how fitting it is for me to do this on the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath, but his healings at another level were these remarkable displays of his mercy. That's what you'll hear people crying out 
as the report of him as a healer went around, son of David, have mercy upon us. And the Lord is merciful and he healed on the Sabbath. He asks, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And it's a question that is intended to provoke. And the answer is plain, yes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And the church has always heard in that a reason to go visit the sick, to go visit the shut-ins. I remember growing up, my closest friend, his father was a, a Dutch Reformed minister, and I had no idea that any of you Reformed people existed. I was a Gentile and part of broad evangelicalism, uh, but thank you for welcoming me. Um, <laughs> but his father uh, would take him as a young man and uh, go to nursing homes, and he would play his trumpet for uh, these uh, elderly folks who had very few visitors and every now and then I would go along with them and even then I was struck by it, struck by the loveliness of it, struck by the, the quaintness of it and things like this have characterized the church's life as she's understood that this is a day that is appropriately filled with compassionate care uh, for those who are in need uh, in these ways. Again, all of this reflects the Lord's goodness, his mercy, the excellencies of our king who did these things par excellence during his ministry and now leads forth a band of imperfect followers but who are truly engaged in similar work, acts of mercy, just as our Lord was merciful. But the true beauty of the day is plain, is it not? What sets the Sabbath apart? What crowns this day of rest? It's worship, beloved. It's worship. And the beauty of beauties is public worship. It's public worship. You hear that in the command itself. Exodus 20. We've heard it so many times. At this point, it's well familiar to you. Where he calls the seventh day a Sabbath to the Lord your God belonging to the Lord. It is an explicitly God-word day. I think it's no coincidence that we hear that ownership set forth plainly in the phrase that I highlighted in Revelation 1. He was in the Spirit on the, the Lord's day. Well, every day is His. Bob Godfrey made this beautiful point. I thought I sent a video out of Bob Godfrey and Sinclair Ferguson discussing the Christian Sabbath uh, through League and Air Ministry. I hope you got a chance to watch that. But one of the points that Bob Godfrey made was uh, those who are against the Christian Sabbath will cite texts from Paul to say, you know, you esteem one day as greater than another. See, all days are equal. But if all days are equal, why is one of them called the Lord's Day? <laughs> that seems to make a distinction, doesn't it? <laughs> It seems to set one apart. It seems they don't know they're not all equal. One of them is uniquely his. And what takes place on this unique day? Worship. It's always been the case. You read in Leviticus 23, 33. Again, these are all texts that the catechism sets forth. Leviticus 23, 23, 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. What's a holy convocation? It's the gathering, the meeting of the people of God in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. That's what the day is for. That's the heartbeat of the day. 
I've been reading through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, again, rehearsing these festivals where Israel was to appear, though the males were to appear three times before the Lord, journeying, making their pilgrim journey to Jerusalem. I was struck by this refrain that showed up in a number of the festivals, showing up in uh, 1611. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who all are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Appearing before the Lord in joy. Not alone. But as an assembly, not just those who are privileged, not just the wealthy landovers, not just the kings, the high and the low, male and female, free and slave, even resident aliens appearing before the Lord in joy. That's what took place on the Sabbaths. That's what the Sabbath was for. You can just rehearse the loveliness of that. You get to appear before the Lord. I mean, that's Edenic language, isn't it? Adam face-to-face with God. It's Abrahamic language. Abraham face-to-face with God. It's Mosaic language. Moses face-to-face with God. It's Moses and the elders face-to-face with God. But supremely, it's us. Because we've seen the greater revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was pleased to make his name dwell in Jerusalem. But even this was a shadow of the one who is the exact image of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom John communed on the Lord's day in the spirit, with whom we commune on the Lord's day in the spirit. The excellencies of this day is worship, not because we're far off talking about some otherworldly reality, but because he brings us near and ushers us into the very invisible places where Christ is seated. Right now, beloved, you are amongst the angels. You can't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not true. That's what it means to worship in faith. That's what it means to tap into the invisible things. For we've come not to a mountain that can be touched, seen, but we come to the heavenly Mount Zion where Christ is seated, where the festal ranks are gathered. They're here, right here, right now. You you can hear them. No, you can't, (laughs) but they're here. I assure you, this is the excellence of the day. New covenant worship is simpler, plainer, and sweeter than old covenant worship, which means what was true of the old is, in a sense, truer in the new, plainer in the new, more widespread in the new, deeper in the new, richer in the new, for it has been brought to the fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, beloved, right now you're tasting heaven. For this is what we'll do for all eternity. We'll worship. 
Right now it's by faith, but then it will be by sight. The jewel of the Sabbath is the gift of worship, which the Father has been pleased to make possible in the Son. The Son is pleased to facilitate by his wonderful intercession, and the Spirit makes effectual as he truly causes us to participate in these invisible things which boggle the mind. And it's in the light of that, I think, that we should take up the question of evening worship. Can't tell you how many times I've encountered the question, where do you see evening worship in Scripture? Give me, give me chapter and verse for evening worship. Okay, Psalm 92. I mean, I don't think this is the best way to answer the question, but Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, a song for the Sabbath, a specific song for the Sabbath. This is a song for the Sabbath. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. It's a song for the Sabbath. It instructs us about the Sabbath. It's a song to take up on the Sabbath. There you go, chapter and verse. Psalm 92, 2. It's not the best way to approach the question, though. Because to approach the question that way, it's kind of stale. <laughs> Last thing I want to do is coerce you to draw near to your king. Mm. That's the perplexity of freedom, isn't it? It's the perplexity of the love by which he woos us and draws us unto himself. And Psalm 92 is plain. It's, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. The goodness, the joy, the gladness of it is the modus operandi. Mm. So there's a sense in which the question of e evening worship is answered by the fact that hearts seeing rightly can't get enough of this God. Is that fair to say? I mean, you've got to say other things. I get it. Like, sometimes I'm a bad preacher. I get it. I get it. There's a lot of bad I get it, but they're still messengers from on high. Sometimes our kids are tough. I get it. I have four kids. My wife mostly deals with them because I'm up here. But I get it. My heart goes out to her every time I hear, you don't think I know my kids cry? Of course I know my kids cry. You don't think in the back of my head I'm going, those are my kids. What's the next point? <laughs> of course I am. So we get it. Things are hard this side of God. Paul says we see in a mirror dimly. So there's a sense in which the Lord is so merciful, he's so kind, he's so patient, he's so good that even our dim-sightedness in terms of the excellencies of what he puts on display when he calls us into his presence to receive of his bounty week in and week out, and we hear that and say, nah, even that is met by his patience. Wow, he is good. Is he not? So your Christian life, even if you love evening worship, how long did it take you to get there? You didn't come out the Christian womb going, can't wait to go back to church on Sunday night. Chances are you said, I got to go back to church on Sunday night. Chances are you just heard about evening worship coming to this church because nobody does it anymore. 
And guess what? The Lord is still good. The Lord is still kind. But if on some level, (laughs) if on some level the heart doesn't crave worship, then we either have a lot to learn or we're still waiting for the eyes to see rightly. Because as we said before, this is heaven, beloved. Hearing from our God, the rehearsal of his glory, taking up the song of the lamb, rejoicing in the redemption, which is visibly on display in the fact that you're not the only redeemed person, but his glory is magnified in as many sinners as there are who are brought to glory. If there's no taste for that on some level, all other things being equal, then you either have a lot to learn or we're still waiting for a work of grace in your heart. I mean, read Acts 20. Read Acts 20, verse 7. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You tell me what sense you get from that text. Is that a how long we got to be here kind of feel that you get from that text? Is that a, ah, do we really have to come back again kind of feel? No, that is the feeling that you get when you are with a best friend and the time flies. It's the feeling you get when you see a day of loveliness on the horizon with the closest companions over food and drink and you are waiting for it and you know it's going to be amazing, but at the same time you're like, I know it's going to be over as soon as it starts. It's the feeling you get in the halls of Elrond and you don't want to go to sleep because you don't want the songs and the stories to end. It's the feeling you get at the end of a vacation where you're like, man, is there any way we could do this for just one more day? Can't can we just eke out one more night? It's been that lovely. Beloved, that's what worship is. That's what the Sabbath is. That's the taste of the heavenly places. Have you tasted it? Have you tasted his goodness? I pray that you have. And if you have, pray that he continues to strengthen that appetite. Pray that he continues to feed to it that you grow. Sinclair Ferguson, in that video I mentioned, says, what young lover will be content with a mere hour with his or her beloved? Won't they be longing for as much time together as possible? Old married couples, recall the intoxication of falling in love. Sam and I were lunatics, lunatics. We were staying up together until three o'clock in the morning talking and we wake up at seven o'clock the next morning and I would call her again. That's lunatic behavior. It's madness. Again, the progression of the relationship eventually gave way to something less lunatic, something much more rich. We see that in the rhythm of the Lord's day. See that in the sustainability of the Lord's day, the pattern of the Lord's day. We're taught to meet with our God on this day of rest and worship as he refreshes us in the cup of his love 
in the bread that does not perish, as he rehearses for us that peace which has been purchased for us by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as he rehearses for us his glory on display in the salvation of sinners and the hope of new creation which has already dawned in the resurrected Christ. Beloved, these things are wonderful things. Just because you've heard them before, don't let them get stale. Pray for that too. Pray that such things will never grow stale. The Israelites complained about manna. Think about that. We've got that in us. Pray that the Lord would never, ever let our hearts grow disinterested in such otherworldly love rehearsed for us. We talk about private worship as well, adorning the day and filling our time. Morning and evening worship takes place two and a half hours. Sometimes I go long. I, in the spirit of this sermon, don't apologize. (laughs) 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 But I still leave the good portion of the day. (laughs) So having established that certain things are welcome on this day, like physical rest and works of necessity and mercy, and having established that morning and evening worship is so fitting and good and right and a gift from our God, it still leaves a good portion of the day to be taken up, doesn't it? And what do we do here? Well, again, we can look at uh, Revelation 1 and see that in many ways John was worshiping in private. John was alone. I was alone on Patmos. Again, more is going on, but less is not going on. That's what he says. I was on an island called Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I was communing with the Lord. There's a loveliness to the personal communion that we can have with our king. Now make no mistake, there's a unique display of his glory in the public assembly. We've gotten this exactly wrong as American Christians in terms of the order of priority. We prioritize the personal and make the corporate secondary. No, 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 no. Don't do that. (laughs) The testimony is plain. The excellencies, the glory of Christ is uniquely on display in the public assembly for reasons we've alluded to. But it doesn't mean that the personal isn't lovely. If the glory of Christ is on display in the public assembly, the glory of Christ is also on display in the personal nature. The sort of Galatians 2 the life, I now live by the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. There's a sense in which the church is his bride, but there's a sense in which Christ died for individuals. Thus the personal communion with this Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is most fitting and most fitting on this day. So what does that look like? Read your Bibles. Not as scholars, as one theologian put it, but as children hearing their father's voice, as heirs reading the will of one who has left you everything in Christ. Read scripture, pray, meditate. Meditate means take a portion of scripture into your mind and lull it over, rehearse it, Take it up like a painting and look at it from one angle, then look at it from another. Sit back, pray over it, worship, pray it. It's magnificent. These things are gifts to us to adorn this day. 
What about conversations about worship? I think the place of the fellowship of the saints is remarkably fitting on this day. Have one another into each other's homes. Share meals with one another. How did the Lord speak to you through his word this morning? I know he's speaking to you because he says he's going to speak to you. And he only ever does what he says he's going to do. How did the Lord speak to you through his word, read, prayed, preached? How did he speak to you? Don't ask, what did you think about the sermon? Evaluate it, rise up like you're some sort of critic scrutinizing everything that the minister does. No, that's a nonsensical way to approach the true and living God. You come under the word. You assume that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, which is address you to the heart, and you ask questions along those lines. How did he speak to you? How did he challenge you? How did he rebuke you? How did he reprove you? How did he correct you? How did he retrieve you? How did he encourage you? How did he nourish you? How did he strengthen you? Those are the things we know he's doing because he says he's going to do them in his word. Ask those questions on the Sabbath. They're remarkably fitting. And don't be surprised if you find the Lord's blessing attending them. There are two miscellaneous things I want to address before I close. The first is, this is such a rare approach to the day, observing the Sabbath. It's the minority approach, even though it's the majority position in history, at least in the Reformed churches. How should we view those who disregard it? How should we view those who have absolutely no appetite for these things? In humility. That's how. Recognizing that you have a relentless penchant for self-righteous Phariseeism. (laughs) Recognizing you have a relentless penchant to overlook how patient the Lord has been with you in your very slow Christian growth. That's how. Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. What does he say? He says, your concern is your soul before your maker. You don't got to worry about them. (laughs) You you want to worry about something? You worry about how far short you're falling of even this beautiful idea of the Sabbath. You worry about how far short you're falling of all these things. You worry about how gracious the Lord has been to you in so many ways that you're prone to overlook. Worry about how merciful Christ has been to you as you've entangled yourself time and time again. You worry about that and you let him worry about them. That's what he says. In humility, recognizing we have all received mercy beyond fathoming. And the last point under the miscellaneous matters is what about our children? They can't observe the Sabbath in the exact same way as we can, and they seem to have different needs than we do. I think there's a number of very basic things that we can pass on to them. Uh, We teach them that today is different. Just that general point, I think, is a, a massive start. It is the Lord's Day. It's not like the six. It's different. We come to worship. We meet with our God. We fellowship with our church family. 
And as you continue to set those things before them, it's going to have an impact. You can ask them about the sermon as they get a little bit older. What did you hear today? Did Michael reference Tolstoy? (laughs) You'd be surprised at how much they catch, even though it doesn't appear that they're constantly amazed at how much children retain, even though at the time they give no indication that they're really tuned in. And the last is appropriate books. Children love to be read to. Read to your children. There's wonderful books in our library for children taking up weighty theological questions. Read to them about their God, for his name is upon them. This day is theirs as well. Keeping it is their theological birthright. And it falls upon us to pass along this beautiful gift of communing with our God and receiving of this day the way that our resurrected king intended it to be received. May he grant us his grace that we may carry out such a high duty. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we do give you thanks for the excellencies of being able to commune with you, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has torn the curtain asunder into the holy of holies, who has brought us near, though we were far off. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater appetite uh, for the heavenly things and the eyes of faith to receive even of your provision of them uniquely on this day. Now, Lord, we uh, know that we're prone to error in so many ways uh, concerning your gifts, and so we ask that you would guard us and keep us. And be pleased, Lord, uh, to enable us to instruct our children in this way, passing along this, this beautiful gift. Uh, Lord, and bless them and keep them as well. We ask in Christ's name, amen.